Well, good morning. This morning we return one last time to the book of Genesis. Last week we continued our look at the life of Joseph, and we heard that famous verse, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. This week we come to a passage that, if anything, might be overshadowed by that verse that comes before. Because this passage is the death and last dying request of Joseph. Young worshipers, Joseph has one thing he wants his family to do when he dies. It's a weird request, it's an odd request, but what is that request? What does he want his family to do? And so we come to Genesis 50, verses 22 through 26, the end of the beginning. Hear now the word of the Lord. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation, The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Would you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, would you be at work in our hearts and minds by your Spirit, for your glory, for our good, and for our hope this morning. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In December 1972, NASA visited the moon once again. This time it was Apollo 17, led by Commander Gene Cernan. And it set many records on their visit. The longest time on the moon's surface, the longest extravehicular time on the moon's surface, the largest amount of samples brought back from the moon, so many things. It was a really ambitious mission. It was years in the making, years of training. And Gene Cernan had this mantra that kept him through all the hard training. And it became the mantra of all of Apollo 17, and it was this. The end of the beginning. I believe he got that from Winston Churchill. But it was the end of the beginning. That was the mantra because this mission was supposed to pave the way for many greater and more ambitious missions to come. To the moon and beyond. Yet this December will mark 50 years since Apollo 17. No one, no manned mission has landed on the moon. No manned mission has been in orbit around the moon. No manned mission has even left low earth orbit. Apollo 17 was a shining light fading into a pale darkness. The end of the beginning or the beginning of the end? Many of us, if we're honest, feel this exact same way about our own lives, our own stories. The promise of youthful vigor suddenly turns to old age and ache. Our hopes of a fantastic career and fame become pipe dreams we'd rather forget. Our relationships, families, and marriages so full of hope turn to places of pain and despair. And our Christian faith, which seemed to start so strong when we were on fire for the Lord, has faded into a lukewarm apathy. Even in our church, New St. Peter's, little did we know when we started Genesis that by the end, we'd be missing a head pastor. Like Apollo 17, in all these things, it so often feels like our stories are not at the end of the beginning but rather the beginning of the end. 
In so many ways, we can resonate, I believe, with these last verses of the book of Genesis. Because the book starts with the creative glory of the eternal God in a beautiful garden. But now we see the cold corpse of a dead man decaying in a coffin. And yet, as we'll see, the story of this dead man, the story of Joseph, and the story of Genesis, and our story, the story of us, is not one of despair, but it is one of hope. So first, the story of Joseph. Last we left him, he'd buried his father and forgiven his brothers. So what does the second in command of all of Egypt do at this point, at the peak of his powers? Verse 22, so Joseph remained in Egypt he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. Apparently nothing. But that's not exactly true. Look at the next verse, verse 23. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. He lives to see not only his grandchildren, but his great-grandchildren. And the phrase, counted as one's own, literally means born on Joseph's knee. It means he was spending time with his children, his grandchildren, and his great-grandchildren. What feels like silence on a political career actually speaks volumes to his love and care for those around him. Truly, the time spent with family and the family of God, especially children, is time never wasted. If we look back on Joseph's story, we see that these blessings only come after his trials. It's similar to the end of the book of Job, where Job is restored and lives 140 years and sees four generations. Joseph lives 110 and sees his great-grandchildren. And at the end of these 110 years, Joseph has one last request. Verses 24 and 25, let me read them for you. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of the land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry my bones up from here. So young worshipers, the request is that the family of God would carry Joseph's bones back when God visits them. Though he will die, Joseph looks to God's promises and hope. He says God will visit you. He says God will surely visit you. Each time, the word is actually used twice. It's a way of providing emphasis in Hebrew. Literally, in visiting you, he will visit. And the word for visit also means to care for you, to attend to you. God's care will definitely be seen in God bringing his people back to the land that he swore to give to the patriarchs. And Joseph here stands squarely in the middle of seven generations. On the one hand, he remembers his father Jacob, his grandfather Isaac, and the stories about his great-grandfather Abraham. And on the other hand, he sees his children and his grandchildren, his great-grandchildren on his knee. And he is sure of God's promise and passes it along to those with him. He is sure of God's promise. And so he makes them make a promise to take his bones back. And so we read verse 26. So Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. He dies. He was embalmed. Literally, he was spiced and put in a coffin. In all of this, the story of Joseph shows hope, not in himself, not in his own wealth, but in the promises of God. What do you and I know outside of the Bible about ancient Egypt? One of the things that comes up again and again is the excess of Egyptian tombs. Think the pyramids. Well, Joseph lived between the time of the building of the great pyramids of Giza and the tomb of King Tut. Somewhere in that, in between. 
I had the, uh, the opportunity to see in St. Louis the exhibit of King Tut's tomb that was traveling around. And it was filled with so many things. It was filled with couches and statues and chariots and jewelry and daggers. Estimated 5,000 things in all. The exhibit when it was traveling had to be insured for $26 million. And this tomb for the ancient Egyptians was considered modest. And yet Joseph, in a world of excess, the second in command over all of Egypt, was laid in a coffin, not even buried. One can imagine the conversations he would have throughout his life and especially the later years. When are you going to start your tomb, Joseph? Where's your birth t- burial chamber going to be, Joseph? What are you going to take with you? How many things are you taking with you? Just as you or I might talk about a 401k or a Roth IRA. And yet Joseph, even to the end, acted not in hope of himself, not in hope of his wealth, not in hope of the Egyptian afterlife, but hope in God and his promises. What does that hope look like for us today? How can we live in hope? It means in this life we put our hope not in our wealth, but in God and his word and his church. There's a, there's a thing we feel in this life, which is to keep up with those around us. We feel this pressure, pressure to get the second house, the nicer car, to have a better vacation, to eat at a nicer restaurant, all of these things, we feel pressure. And yet, what if instead we spend our time and our money, like Joseph, on the things that matter? The people that will live eternally. Those we love and those around us in this world. And how can our lives to them be a testimony of our hope in the promises of God? This is true for all generations, but especially for those of us that are older. Those in our congregation that are grandparents, both physically and spiritually. I love this quote from John Phillips, who's writing about Joseph, and by extension, grandparents, both physical and spiritual. He says, They are intended to form a living link, not just with the past out of which they have emerged, but with the eternal future on the threshold of which they stand. We live in a world that values youth and what is new, but we need to value age and wisdom. Which means those of us who are younger, like myself, 20s, 30s, even our students, middle school, high school, we need to spend time with those older than us. We need to learn from their wisdom and experience. Like Joseph's life, we're also meant to be a testimony to the unbelieving world. People ask questions based on the way we live, and we are able to share the hope we have in God's promises. This also means not just living well, but dying well. For many, the greatest acts of faith we have lie before us when we stand on the threshold of eternity. How can our last moments point to hope in God's promises? Not just that there is life after death, but a better life, an eternal life after death. How like Joseph in his coffin, both in life and in death, can we be signposts of hope to a world of despair? And like Joseph's coffin, the graves of believers even now point to those of us still here of the blessed hope of resurrection to come. And so the story of Joseph is one of hope. Second, the story of Genesis. As we see in this passage, Joseph links future hope to the past promise that God made to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Joseph knows that he's part of a bigger story, and that's the story of Genesis. The promise that he claims was originally given to Abraham in Genesis 12. Descendants and land is one way to sum it up. In Genesis 15, we see this promise again to Abraham repeated, descendants and land. But there God says the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete, so it will be a while. 
In Genesis 26, there's a famine, and Isaac, the grandfather of Joseph, is told, don't go down to Egypt. I will give you this land, and you will have descendants. At least six times by my count, the promise of descendants and land is repeated to the patriarchs. And this promise, though new in form with Abraham, actually echoes back from the time before the patriarchs. Think Genesis 1, in the beginning, God says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, descendants, land. And yes, there's a fall in Genesis 3, but the hope in the fall comes from a promise, the promise of offspring, a descendant who would crush the head of the deceitful serpent. Then after the flood to Noah, God says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth in Genesis 9, descendants and land. The problem with the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11 is that people don't want to be dispersed where God wants them to go. They don't want to go to the lands that he has for them. And so then in Genesis 12, the commands now turn into a form of a a promise from God that Abraham would have descendants and land, and through his offspring, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And for Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, they only see small glimpses of this promise. For Abraham and Isaac, they live in the promised land, but they're small in number. They don't have many descendants. But for Jacob, who has many sons and a large family, so we begin to see the promise of descendants, his family ends up in Egypt, not in the land. And that's why he wants to go back and be buried in the land. He spends his last 17 years there. Joseph, on the other hand, spends only his first 17 years in the land of promise, but still holds out for that hope, and so asks to be buried with his fathers in the land of promise. Because of the promise, God is preserving his people. He not only preserves his people, but he also preserves his promise, and he uses faithful people like the patriarchs and their wives. The Genesis story is not over. I love what the Reformation Study Bible says. The patriarchal era has ended, but not its hope. And though at times we know these saints tried to bring these promises about by their own power again and again, we do know that the Genesis story is one of hope, and ultimately hope in the promises of God. Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner puts it this way, the book ends by pointing beyond its own story, very similar to the life of Joseph. We heard this morning Hebrews 11 talking about these saints, and it refers to them how? It talks about them and says, by faith, by faith, by faith. By faith, they were seeking a better country. I'm reminded of what our Lord Jesus says in Matthew 13, verses 44 through 46. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all he had and bought it. The patriarchs believed that God's promises were like that. They were willing to sell their field. They were willing to sell all they had to go buy the field. And even though we know at times they didn't believe the promises or they wanted to bring about themselves, the definitive statement on who they are comes from Hebrews and says they all lived by faith. And graciously, God says they live by faith and in hope. So what does it mean for us to look again to live in this sort of hope? The hope of the story of Genesis. It means like Abel and Abraham being willing to offer our best and our own hope to God. It means like Noah being willing to stand with God and be misunderstood by the world. It means like Abraham following the Lord where he leads. 
It means like Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and his wives, raising generations who know the promises of God. It means we sell all we have to buy this field and the treasure inside it. If someone were to watch us this past week or this coming week and look at us, what story would our lives really be pointing to? The story of our own glory and power? The story of other people? The story of the world around us? The story of the movie we watched or the TV show? But would it point to the story of God and his eternal promises? And that brings us to the story of us. But we have to ask the question, sure, the patriarchs had hope. Sure, Joseph had hope. But was it misplaced? What actually happened? Right? The question still remains, what happened to the hope of the patriarchs? How do we get from the story of Genesis to us? And is that hope worth having? Well, look again at Genesis 50, 24. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. This is the first passage in the Bible to refer to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all together, just like that, which is a familiar form that shows up later on in Scripture. The expression Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob occurs 22 times in the Old Testament, nine times in Exodus alone, ten times in the New Testament. Genesis is clearly part of the bigger story of God's Word. The next time we see this phrase used is in Exodus chapter 3, when God says to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am who I am, and says that he is going to go back and visit his people in Egypt. And the Lord did. The Lord visited his people. He showed his power over all creation, and he took his people out of the land of Egypt. And remember, the book of Genesis was written by Moses to tell the people who's been delivered from Egypt, this is your story. This is who you are. This is where you came from. And we read this in Exodus 13, 19. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. So Moses took Joseph's bones. All of Israel could see the coffin with them as they left Egypt. This word for coffin here also means chest, but also can mean ark, similar to the Ark of the Covenant. So the people of Israel, on the one hand, had the Ark of the Living God and the coffin of a dead man. What a reminder to them and to us of our reality and need for God. Dead men and a living God. More connections to Genesis and the rest of the Pentateuch. In this passage in Genesis, we hear Makir, son of Manasseh, named. And we wonder, why do they single that guy out? Why is he mentioned? I don't don't really know that name. We read this in Numbers 32 through 39. Bear in mind, Moses also wrote the book of Numbers. Numbers 32, 39. And the sons of Machir, the son of Manasseh, went to Gilead and captured it and dispossessed the Amorites who were in it. So those of Machir's line capture Gilead. And who do they capture it from? The Amorites. Remember Genesis 15, the bigger story of God. And at the end of the book of Joshua, when they're finally in the land, we read this in Joshua 24, 32. As for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem in the piece of land that Jacob bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. It became an inheritance of the descendants of Joseph. So Joseph's bones were buried. God had fulfilled his promise to his people, and so the people fulfilled their promise to Joseph. Yet what about the greater promise? What about the greater promises that we heard in Genesis? That all the nations of the earth would be blessed. 
that an offspring would come who would crush the head of the serpent. Yes, Joseph is buried where he wants to be buried, but yet he's still dead. And Israel, as we know, wouldn't stay in the promised land. They would be fractured and exiled. They would lose their best and brightest to Babylon, and they would lose their land, the complete opposite of the promise of descendants and land. And while some did return after the exile, they were small in number. Their land was controlled by another power. And it must have felt like the beginning of the end. Where was hope? And yet after years of silence, like the years of silence in Egypt, God once again did visit his people. A child was born, but more than a child. This is what Zechariah says in Luke chapter 1. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. God himself visits his people. And this time he comes himself in the person of Jesus, fulfilling all the promises, including crushing the head of the serpent. And how did he do that? By his own death. He too, just like Joseph, died. His death was a death on the cross. He was taken down. He too was wrapped in spices. And he was buried. And again, his followers must have thought, just like everybody else, this is the end. This is truly the beginning of the end. There's no hope. There's only despair. And yet three days later, some faithful women would be coming with more precious spices and would find his tomb empty. And then they saw him. Jesus has risen from the dead. And the good news that Jesus has risen has spread across the world and down through the centuries to us. We are a part of that great story. That great story that includes the story of Joseph and the story of Genesis. And so no matter what, we have hope. Hope of new life, hope of new purpose in Jesus now, and hope in death of a glorious resurrection when he comes again. Once again, we are waiting, but once again, we are waiting in hope. Again, I love what Kidner says here about about these words in Genesis. Joseph's dying words epitomize the hope in which the Old Testament, and indeed the New, would fall into expectant silence. God will surely visit you. If we are in Jesus, if we believe in him, then his story is our story, which means our story is one not of despair, but of hope. And sometimes we're a little bit discouraged when we read passages like this because we think about the great deeds of those that came before us and think, okay, I can't do those great acts of faith. What can I do? But there are so many things we don't get about their lives. We don't get so many of Joseph's years that he just spends faithfully with his family. And somehow we think those are less than deeds of faith, but they're not. I'm reminded of the end of the book Middlemarch by George Eliot, also known as Marianne Evans. And one of the characters, Dorothea, it's being described what the rest of her life was like. And the whole book is about people trying to position themselves to marry the right person, to get the right inheritance, to have that kind of money, right? Trying to find hope in the things of this world. But this is the end in describing her life. But the effect of her being on those around her was incalculably diffusive. For the growing good of the world is partially dependent on unhistoric acts, 
on things, and things that are not so ill with you and me as they might have been is half owing to the number who lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. The Lord sees our faithfulness. Even though it might not be written about in the book of Genesis, it might not be the story of Joseph, we are called to faithfulness and hope. Hope in God's eternal promises. Going back to Apollo 17, Gene Cernan died on January 16, 2017, surrounded by his family. He never saw his hopes of space exploration come to fruition. And yet in the last five years, we have seen an explosion of interest and resources and time spent on space exploration. In fact, NASA's Artemis II is scheduled to place human beings in orbit around the moon in 2024. And in fact, in 2025, Artemis III will visit the moon again, sending humans back to the surface of the moon once again. And the Apollo 17 story is not one of despair. It's one of hope. In the same way, Joseph, who died surrounded by his family, was not a death, was not a story ending in despair, but one of hope. Hope in the promises of God that come to full fulfillment in Jesus. Because in Jesus, the story of Joseph is one of hope. In Jesus, the story of Genesis is one of hope. And in Jesus, our story, the story of us, is one of hope in Jesus. For by his grace, we are made a part of his great story. And we know the ending. In Christ, we can die as Joseph died and say to those we love, wait in hope. God will surely visit you. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a blessed hope we have in you and in your Son. Oh Lord, would that hope control us? Would that love of Christ control us? Would you help us to live in hope? to love those around us well, whether Christian or non-Christian, would our lives be testimonies and signposts to the blessed resurrection hope we have in Jesus. Would you help us to care well for one another and to die well with the hope of eternity on our hearts and minds. Lord, we ask all these things in the name of the one who fulfills all the promises. In the name of Jesus, amen.